Here we go. Broadcasting from Atlanta, Georgia. You are now live from the Midnight Circus. This is Lahamadu, and I've got a great show for you today. Today, our featured artist is Dean Sekiro. He's got a brand new release out. We'll be listening to tracks from that. And of course, we'll be talking with Dean at the top of the hour. Now, this is the voice of Indie Blues. This is the show that brings you nothing but currently touring artists who are out there creating new, original music rooted in the blues. We embrace the diversity of music that always has and still is being created from those roots. Now, if you get a chance, stop by our website at makingascene.org. We got some great articles, CD reviews, artist interviews, podcasts, and so much more. In the meantime, I have got some great new music. I just can't wait for you to hear. And some great new artists I know you're going to love. And of course, I aim to misbehave.
looking for a hideaway Somewhere I can go and play I'm searching for a home A place to go When I want to be alone But it's so disgusting has left me So I left town in a flash yeah. From a woman who's not a worthy yeah. has left me So I left town in a flash yeah. From a woman who's not a worthy yeah. My baby has left me 
back home one more time Going back to the blue Back to my hometown, Baton Rouge The winding river roll along A sweet southern song Take me closer to my home Back to I'm feeling so sad 
feet. You missed it. Recalculating. Turn around now. I got an app over here. Tweet, tweet. App over there. Tweet, tweet. App, tweet, tweet. App, Twitter everywhere. Ain't technology grand. I Video the truth. I can offer up the proof when authorities take down another black youth. Oh, ain't technology grand? I say, ain't technology grand? Yeah, ain't technology grand? I'll tell the whole world with one command. Storm's coming. You can just pull up your shows, curl up in a duvet, maybe even draw up a bath and see where the night takes you. That sounds real nice.
Be standing by 
things that a woman do to me
But if you play with matches, you're just bound to get burned. I never can be all that you desire. I should know that a fool will never learn.
no time to rest In this gig economy Done with one job and on to the next your breath Don't let life pass you by Time's really all we get
Every time I turn around, blues right there. Take a deep breath, blues is in the air. Say the blues. artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. 
For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. And now, here is an indie blues double shot from our featured artist today, Dean Zakiro. And stay tuned for that interview. It comes up right after these songs.
from his brand new release and we got dean on the line hey dean how you doing i'm doing well rich thanks for having me it's a pleasure to be here it's a pleasure to have you on the show now um this is the first time you've been on our show and we always like to start things off by giving our fans this opportunity to get to know who you are as a person as an artist and the best way to do that is through your journey, your story. So give us the story of Dean Zakuro. Uh Well, I grew up on Long Island, and um, as a teenager, I started playing music. Um, got into the bass guitar because a couple of my friends were starting up a band, and they needed a bass player, so I volunteered and bought a bass for $35 and learned a couple of songs. This was the late 70s. Um, started up that way and got kind of hooked into it. Um, I knew that was the, the direction I wanted to go in career-wise. So I started up a band um, by the name of Anastasia, who later became Major Domo, and we we played the circuit a lot in the 80s, um, all the main places. Uh, it was more of a farcy pop band, 
So we were playing like CBGB's, Mercury Lounge, which came a little bit later, uh, The Bitter End. Um, and I, I had a run with them for a long time. And then ultimately, uh, we got signed to uh, an indie label on Wedge Records and then released a single and just toured the coast a lot. And by that time, we had been at it for about 12 years, and I was getting a little tired of it. I just wanted to get into some, some blues bands and play blues. So I did that in the city and started hooking up with the local players. Um, met, um, you know, all, 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 the, all the, the decent blues guys in the, in the circuit and started doing that. And um, later on, I left uh, New York and I moved to Europe for about 10 years. I played with a couple of, a New York band called The Healers with Thomas Buck Nasty. We toured Europe for a bit, and then I was in Italy for a while, played with this Italian swing band, Sugar Pie and the Candymen, and then came back in 2013. Um, I had no more apartment in New York, and I decided to move down to New Orleans and give it a go, and came down here and, and fell in love with the city and managed to get work right away and hooked up with some great players. I became, uh, <coughs> excuse me, the bass player for Cyril Neville's band, so right away I was... Uh, I was in a good situation, just touring around with him, went to Africa, did, did a few jazz fests with him, and then uh, got involved with other projects. It's very communal down here in New Orleans, so everybody plays with everybody, and um, over the years I met Gallia Vault, became her bass player. She signed with Ruth Records, so I worked with her on a couple albums, played with the Mama's Boys, and, uh, and here I am. Then um, <clears throat> during the pandemic, I was writing a lot of songs, and I decided I wanted to do my first solo record. I don't uh, sing lead, but I write music, and I play bass, and I produce. So I figured, let me just enlist the services of all my favorite uh, vocalists, regional vocalists and musicians, and put together an album. And that's kind of how we got to the point we're at right now. Okay. Electric, spiritually misguided. Now, i got to so ask you, what, what part of Long Island are you from? I'm originally from Merrick. Okay. South Shore in uh, Nassau County. And as a teenager, I moved into the city in the East Village. I lived there up until about um, 2005, 2007, at which point I moved to Europe. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm a Suffolk County guy. I'm uh, born and raised in Smithtown. Okay, so we're neighbors. Oh, yeah. We're neighbors. Oh, yeah. I actually founded the Long Island Music Hall of Fame. Oh, um, really? Yeah. They uh, they opened their museum. is now in Stony Brook. Okay. So uh, they have a museum there. It's, you know, it's like two floors and all kinds of displays and stuff. It's cool. It's a cool little, right. uh, they got a venue in there and everything. Oh, that's so, neat. Yeah, you should well, check it out. I will. Now, will, uh, next time I'm out there, I'll, I'll have a peek. There you go. Now, um, if you were walking down the street and you ran into someone, you decided to, you know, that you wanted to give them the elevator pitch about this particular release, what would you tell them that would entice them to go and listen? Well, I, I, I tried to do three things with this uh, for for a really good record. And hopefully this will be considered as one. I, I, I put my heart into it. I think you need to have, for one, songwriting. That's, that's really important. Um, and th th I call it the Holy Trinity. So it has to be songwriting. It has to be the performance. 
and then it has to be the production. And if you get those three together, then I think you'll have a good record. And if you look historically at, you know, some of the better records in in rock and roll or uh, blues, they have those three elements. So I think songwriting is real important, and it has to it has to be performed well, and then it has to be sonically right, so it can be appreciated by the ear. Right, right. Now, um, now you've been on the road and, and, and traveling around the world for quite some time in your career. And I'm always curious, because, you know, every musician has a road story, you know, one that that stands out in their mind as being um, that pivotal kind of story that that kind of really epitomizes their, their, their life on the road. What, what is your road story? One in particular, that's hard to say. Um, I have to think about that. I mean, you know, each time I go to Europe, it's, uh, I've, I've been fortunate enough to have reached six continents to, to play live. And um, I had a really nice time in Asia one time. We did a, uh, I did a residency in Shanghai. Then I did a couple of tours of Australia with, uh, with the Healers and Thomas Bucknasty. And that was a wonderful trip. Really, really uh, warm audience who, who loved, like, hard-hitting blues. So for me, it's about, um, it's the reception, you know, wherever you go. Uh, people pay money to see you. It's a nice thing. You know, some, some of the venues here in the States, I think it's maybe taken for granted a little bit that music is free sometimes, especially, you know, in New Orleans and some places. People walk in and they just, you know, they, they hear music. It's, it's background. But if you're doing a show abroad, Typically, there's a ticket that's sold. Somebody invests in it. They decided early in the week they want to come see you. They come. They listen. They might be interested in buying the CD. They want to talk to you. They want an autograph. So, uh, for me, any any time that goes on, it's it's, it's an amazing experience. And um, you know, I've been able to do that in a little bit in South America, and then went to South Africa with Cyril Neville, and that was a really awesome experience to experience. Uh, you know, African culture at a in a way I never had before. Okay. Now, let's uh, delve into your world as a songwriter. Um, every songwriter has their own way of tapping into the muse, whether it's the Nashville mentality where you write every day, everything is very structured, you make appointments to do co-writes, and then there's others that are more inspirationally driven. When you sit down to begin writing, what is your process that allows you to kind of get things going? Well, I guess you could do it from two angles. You know, you could have a lyrical idea or you can have a melodic idea. And, you know, some, you know, Lennon and McCartney, you know, McCartney always said, um, you know, the melodies were easy for him. So if, if, once he had the lyrics, he could, he could come up with something. He said that was the harder part. And I think with Lennon, it was the other way around. But you know, in any event, they still wrote great songs. For me, whatever comes first, I don't know. Sometimes I wake up and I have a melody in my head. So I'll, uh, I'll be singing it. I'll play it on the bass or an instrument. And sometimes there'll be lyrics attached to it. And the lyrics won't make any sense. But they just keep singing. They, they're singable. So I'll take those lyrics and I'll start to mold them into something, maybe a line that makes sense or a line that's slightly relevant. Maybe my unconscious is pushing me in a direction where, you know, it wants me to go, but I don't know where that is yet. And I can figure it out over time. 
And then sometimes I just have like a, a lyrical idea, a funny line or a hook, and I write it down. And then I say, well, one day I'll come back and revisit this. And hopefully I do eventually. And, and I spend a lot of time. You know, lyrics are, uh, they're very time consuming. And to get it to get it right, it could take weeks and weeks and weeks, and uh, sometimes even longer. Um, it's easy to write a an okay lyric, but if you're going to really put some love into it, some 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 depth with uh, some double meaning, some play, you know, play off of words and such, then it takes time. Um, so I, I guess from either side, you know, music or or, or some lyrical kind of angle, it depends. Okay. Now, let's talk a little bit about um, some of the tools that you may use, because songwriters today have really embraced technology as part of their toolkit, whether it's the cell phone or home recording studio. What are some of the tools that you have found to be indispensable to you as a writer um, when you sit down to write? Well, the imagination, I guess, that's probably the best, because if somehow you can get a melody in your head, and you know, I'll just put, I'll just, um, put it on my, my phone, I'll just record it, you know, uh, a line, I'll sing it. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night, and I mumble something in there, and the next day sometimes it's unintelligible. But, um, or I'll wake up in the morning and play a bass line. Um, the, the way I did this record was uh, my, my goal was to update my home studio and it became such a process that I got discouraged with it during the pandemic and I was spending a lot of time coming up with ideas because there was nothing else to do and um, I just um, you know I met a friend one of, the, one of the drummers on the record Doug Belote we were, we were hanging out having a beer one time and I said yeah I'm going to be doing a doing some recording and he said I, I know this really great studio with a with an outstanding engineer and i said yeah i want to put the songs first down as a demo and he said well forget about the demo he goes well let's just go in and track and i said okay so all i did was i i set the song up i i went in this was different than how i usually record a record and how i produce a record i did this very uh, from the bottom up I, I went in and recorded most of the tracks were just bass and drums to start with uh, which goes against my traditional approach to, to tracking which is usually just done live with, with a full band but I didn't know what I was doing at times I just had ideas so I went in there and I recorded three or four songs with him and I loved the sound quality I told the engineer what I was looking for I said I'm, I want to go get like an early 70s like Neve sound you know when music just got a little more sophisticated from the 60s stuff, it was still creative and artsy, but there was 24-track recording going on. So I went in, and I was very happy with the performance um, on the drums, of course, uh, and, and the sound. So I said, hmm, this is interesting. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll do a record like this. So then I started layering on top. Um, then I brought in a guitar player. Who, who, who could I imagine to play on these tracks? And slowly, three or four songs evolved. And then I went in again, and um, and I did it two or three more times. And then over the course, it, uh, I, this record took about nine to ten months to, to finish, because I would go in there a few times a week, um, which is completely different than what I usually do. Usually, you get the band, you get it together, you rehearse, everybody has an idea, there'll be some improvisational moments and you record and you track as much live as possible. And I like that spontaneity. 
and then you're done with the record in a week to ten days. Okay. So now this this kind of record worked out, um, and it was it was good because I was able to write as I was going along. Like I had this one song, I had um, this bass line, and I and I brought in Terrence Higgins to play drums to it. And we tracked it, and it was a cool line. I remember saying, oh, I like this groove, you know. And I said, yeah, I like this groove, but I don't know what to do with the song. And I kind of tucked it away until the very end. And then I brought, um, I thought of Papa Molly. I figured he would sound really good on this, on this song playing guitar. So we put guitar down, and I was like, wow, this is, this is neat now. Um, then all of a sudden I started getting ideas for melodies and lyrics. And I sat down over the course of a week, and I wrote it. And that was the song Fascist Love. And it's one of my favorite songs on the record now. And it was a song that it was going to be a throwaway. I was gonna, not even going to use the track. But because of the process that was used this time, I was kind of able to write as I was moving along, you know. Okay. Now, you know, uh, every songwriter has to get to a point where they put the pen down and they move the song from the writing phase into production. Um, and every writer has their way of quantifying when a song is done. What do you do to kind of determine when your song is ready to move to that next phase of its life? You mean the, the, the final stage? <laughs> well, not, not so much the final stage. Because, you know, songs constantly evolve you know you write it you go into the studio the band gets to put their fingerprints on it evolves in there then you take it out on the road and even then it still evolves but i'm talking about that that time where between the writing and going into production going into the studio giving it to the band giving it to the producer you know and allowing them to kind of have their input but you got to get to that point what yeah. what do you do to determine when that song is ready to kind of give to the band and the producer and, and you know, and move to that next phase? Right. I think, you know, the economic imperative plays, you know, rears its ugly head each and every time. You, you run out of time. You know, I mean, the Beatles used to write, a, they wrote Rubber Soul in one week, I mean, which is unbelievable to think about that because they had a week off and Brian Epstein said, can you guys produce a record? And McCartney says, one week, that's great, you know? So, you know, and they used to go in and track the song. They would track a single in three hours. So, you know, when it was, when it had to be done, you, you just did it. You know, you rose to the occasion. You did the best you could. Um, you know, with this record, I produced it and I made the decisions as to when the song was done. And sometimes I found what I was looking for. And sometimes I just said, this is enough. I don't, I don't know where else to go. And this is as good as it'll get. Um, so it's a little bit of, you know, having the ability to push and running out of time, running out of money. But I think, you know, when you're, when you're writing, if you, if you have the time, especially lyrics, like as a bass player, writing riffs, is 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 easy for me. I, I I play them all day, so I could just encapsulate them into a song with a bridge. It's, it's it's not a hard thing to do, but writing a melody on top that's hooky and writing lyrics that are interesting is very challenging. And you know, pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and keep coming back to it 
day after day after day until finally you listen to it and it just makes sense to you. It doesn't feel awkward anymore. It feels right. You know, it, it reaches the form, so to speak, the platonic form, you know. Not to get all cosmic here, but, um, yeah, you know, you just keep pushing until you like it. And then trust yourself, trust your instincts, and try to write a song for yourself and not, you know, for commercial success. I mean, you get yourself into trouble with that. I mean, it's okay to write pop songs. You know, that's great. But make sure you like them. Okay. Um, now, let's talk about going into the studio. Um, you know, once you write a song, that's half the equation. You need to give it its identity, its sound, its uniqueness. But not only for the song, but also you as an artist, you have a sound. You have a certain um, technique when you go into that environment. What do you do when you get in the studio that helps you capture the sound you're looking for? You mean the 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 tones, the sounds of the instruments, or the overall sound of a particular song or a record? Well, I mean, yeah, the sound of a record. When you go into the studio, do you like to do it live? Do you like to track yeah. it? Do you like to um, do a combination of that, or did you do it pandemic style, where you were slinging stems around the internet, and there were studios all over the you know the globe that you no, were we utilizing? Did, we, I, not do that for Electric Church, uh, for the Spiritually Misguided. Everything was recorded on site, and um, I wanted to hear it. I wanted to decide whether it, was, it worked or not, and I wanted it recorded in the same studio for sonic consistency because I liked the studio I was using, and I liked all the, the preamps we were using, all the compression units. It was it was really working for me. It was getting that early '70s sound that I was looking for. So everything was recorded on site. Um, I think, you know, w what develops your sound, you know, as an artist, you, there's only so many ideas I personally have, so I rely on other people, too. I, I have an idea, uh, an overall idea of what I want the song to sound like, but I also give freedom to the people who I hire, and I hire them because I like their sound, and I want their sound in there, and I, you know... He'll play a little bit, and maybe uh, I'll, I'll let them just do their thing, and then point out, "Hey, that's really good. Let's let's move in that direction." Or they might nail it, or it may just be completely off the mark, and uh, either you redirect or you just try somebody else. So I think having the right having the right players is really important. As, as I said, the two first records, the Gallia Vault, she was on roof, and I produced those two records, and we did them very live. Uh, with Mama's Boys was the uh, Galley and the Mama's Boys was the first record, and I went into the studio. We we were we were rehearsed. We knew what we were doing, and we went in and we tracked live. I had a great band and a great drummer. I played bass. I knew what I wanted to do, and then we, you know, David Farrell mixed the record. And I said I wanted kind of a, a good room sound. I wanted it to sound real, and he, and he did a great job with the mixing. So I did that the first record, the second record as well. We tracked. Um, Mississippi Blend with Gallia. We went to um, North Mississippi to Zebra Ranch and we tracked with uh, the drummer and, and Gallia and myself and sometimes a guitar, another guitar player. And uh, we tracked those parts live and we kept them. There was a, there's a real integrity there. 
Um, but for this record, it was it was different, as I said. And it, was, it was an interesting way to do it. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so tell me about the lineup on this. Who's playing? Um, that's a good question. Well, I kind of commissioned... There's 11 tunes, there's two instrumentals, so I kind of commissioned the services of uh, like nine of my favorite regional vocalists. And I, um, you know, I used, uh, I used Johnny Sansone. He sang on a song. He was one of the first guys I asked. And he's like, sure, I'd love to do it, you know, anything to help out. And I have Sunpie Barnes, and I have, um, I have Johnny Rawls singing um, the, the single, uh, Big Boss Boy. He's from Mississippi. Jason Ritchie, I have him playing on an instrumental. I had Papa Molly playing on guitar, Johnny Bergen singing. I co-wrote a song with Johnny. He came in and, and put some lyrics down on a song that I had written, and I just didn't have any time. I, and he knew he was coming in to do another track. I said, why don't you, you have any lyrics? you want to try this? So we did a song together, and Gallia Volt, um, Jonathan Boogie Long, Dale Spaulding. And then on keys, I had Joe Crown. And on drums, I got my you know two of my favorite drummers. I got Doug Belote, and I got Terrence Higgins. Um, and uh, a couple other singers, Jeremy Joyce and Leslie Smith. Those were the, the nine vocalists. And I have Phil Breen on keys on a bunch of stuff. And Jake Eckert was the uh, the engineer, and he laid down some awesome guitar parts as well when I needed them. So it's a, it's a, it's a cool record. I mean, I think, um, you know, it's good to have names as long as the music sounds good. And I think uh, I'm happy with the way it came out. I think the guys did a great job and uh, they put their hearts into it. And I think it's cohesive, um, which, you know, uh, I think the the, the listener, w w w you know, wants to determine that in the end. I think that's what he, what he or she is looking for, some kind of cohesion in the music. Right. So hopefully there. Now, um, of course, once you get this recorded, you have to get it out of your, um, you have to get it to press, you have to get it to radio, and you're working with Patty DeVries of Devious Planet. Tell me a little bit about that relationship. Well, Patty, I got to know through Ruth, because I worked on the first two records with Gallia, um, so I was always involved in the, in the emails that were going back and forth, um, and you know, and maybe some suggestions along the way. You know, marketing is and, 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 and publicity is is not my thing. It's something I pay attention to, but I'm no expert. So she does a great job. And when it came time to put the record together, I figured I would um, put it on my own label. I form a label, which I did. Uh, called Pugnacious Records. It's named after my pug, <laughs> and um, and I hired Patty because she does a great job with with Gallia Vault and and a lot of other roof artists. Um, so I, I I got her involved, and and she she works wonders. You know, she's a, she's a uh, hardworking New York lady, and I, I appreciate that. Oh yeah. Uh, now uh, 
Let's talk a little bit about the music industry as a whole. You've been part of the industry for some time, and you've seen this digital revolution as it progressed. Um, And now we're at a point where the consumer has really embraced streaming as a way to consume music. And it's a no-brainer for them. I mean, they pay less. They get so much more. You know, for $10 a month, you have access to pretty much everything that's been recorded in the last 100 years. Um, the problem is is that they no longer look at recorded music as a product to purchase anymore. And that's really affected the independent artists, I think, most. So I'm just curious, how has this shift in perception by the uh, consumer affected you as an artist? I mean, you got to go along with the game a little bit. Um, you know, it's, it's a singles-driven industry now i guess which is what it was really in the 50s if you think about it people bought singles right elvis didn't really put out albums he would put out a single or um and then over a period of time they pop it on an album of some sort i think in the 60s people started doing albums more and into the 70s um for me you know you have to accept that but i'm still i grew up in a period where we bought a record and we came home and we opened the record and we were excited. It was it was tangible. It was physical. Uh, there was a center. You opened it up. There were credits. There were liner notes. Everything and and you read it and you it, you immersed yourself in the record. And there were lyrics. And I still like that. So um, for this record, I decided to do the same thing. And um, I, I included all the lyrics. You know, not everybody buys CDs anymore. I will get vinyl out there. Um, in the near future, but I just decided to be stubborn about it and and try to somehow impose my an hour right um, upbringing musical upbringing onto today's you know culture mm-hmm. consumer culture in music and you know it's not it's going to ultimately change the industry but somehow trying to work on getting the artwork on the record. I think the design of the record was done very well by a gentleman who my 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 uh my graphic artist, uh Sean Riley did an outstanding job. So and we've gotten some compliments on it. So it would be a shame to for this to go up uh, into the electronic world and forfeit all that stuff that people could, you know, maybe enjoy. Maybe, you know, I think the culture has changed so much that people don't even know what they're missing anymore. Maybe they don't care, but they don't know. So somehow we can reshape it a little bit and um, get that, you know, that part of the, the, the album experience back in the picture. You know, maybe, uh, maybe we can make a turnaround here. And it's kind of what I was trying to do. I wanted like an early 70s kind of concept album, the playful, you know, title, Electric Church for the Spiritually Misguided. I mean, it has... meanings in various ways but I wanted it to be fun and kind of 70s and um, so you know but on the other hand I have to embrace the the reality of the situation and that is you know you release a single there is streaming Um, is it is it uh, profitable you know I, I guess if you have 70 million hits you'll make something but for a blues artist it's you know not the most profitable thing at this stage. Well, you know, and and you know, it's almost a catch twenty two on this uh, streaming. If you're not there, 
someone goes looking for you, if they don't find you on Spotify or whatever they're listening to, um, you now become irrelevant. You know, you, you they just move on. It's there's just so much out there now, and at their fingertips that they really don't. You know, if I can't find you, then I'll just move on to someone else. So yeah. you're almost forced into that world. You know, in, in spite of what you you know you believe or you know, what you want, it's part of our reality now. The you know, and like you said, it takes so many streams to. Uh, accomplish enough revenue to even make it worthwhile and you look at it it's not sustainable that we we can't run an industry where we undervalue the product even in terms of what it cost to produce it you know going into the studio hiring yeah. musicians uh producers you know pr people all of these things cost money, and the independent artist is paying for this up front without any chance whatsoever of breaking even. You know, um, you know, CDs, you can make CDs, and you know, the, the reality is you can't go to the store and buy a CD player anymore. You can't go to the dealership and get a CD in your car. Um, so... Once that hardware is, is gone, the software is not too far behind. And even yep. with vinyl, if someone went to your merch table and purchased the vinyl, you know, they're going to take it home. They'll have you sign it. But they're going to stream you on the way home. You know, that's how they're consuming music. As much as we, we may not like it, that's the reality. We need to look at what we are faced with and say, how do we monetize this? How do we get a seat at the table as this evolves so we now have at least a sustainable income stream from this that is composite with the the um, material that we're creating? You know what I mean? The content. Right. Yeah. What, what do you think needs to happen to change this dynamic? There has to be some paradigm shift. You know, I think if, if a, a big, big artist um, took a took a gamble and, and, and decided to... And some of them, they, 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 they put their, their dukes up to Spotify. I know um, uh, Peter Frampton did a, a while back. He testified in court in front of a judge stating, you know, he had X amount of, um, you know... Views and he got several thousand dollars, and the judge was just was perplexed. He couldn't believe it. But I think if somebody just says, you know, this is what we need to do. It happened in the '90s with like Pearl Jam with with ticket sales. You know, they they stood up to the industry, and 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 that can make a difference sometimes. So, you know, the fact that uh, I I don't know how it would be done. You know, because you have owners of Spotify, and and everybody says the same thing. Well. The, 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 there's been a shift now, and we need to go along with this. It's, it's, it's a content game. Well, the content game is just exhausting to the artist. It basically what it's saying is you need to do a lot more work, and you you may get a little bit of payoff over a long period of time. That's that's really the the content game. I think that's what it translates into. Nice. I, you know, I don't know how from a 
strategic or business model standpoint, you'd be able to shift this paradigm. You know, the, <coughs> well, you know, some of the things that I've been watching um, promises to, to evolve streaming into something that we can have more control over. Um, there is this new shift of decentralizing the music industry, utilizing that same technology that they use in cryptocurrencies, such as the blockchain. One of the things that that they have developed now that's out there are these new streaming services that utilize the blockchain as a way to store and 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 um, and present this content the thing about the blockchain it's a decentralized system in other words it is owned by the users of that particular service and the artists who are putting up the content so it's more of a artist fan direct relationship right. and they're claiming that they can pay up to 80 percent of the incoming revenue back to the content creators themselves. Now, and and a lot of that is because of the fact that it's only 20% to kind of run these nodes in the blockchain. You know, you've heard of these, you know, crypto farmers and, you know, uh, these, uh, I guess, uh, crypto farms or whatever. And and that's really what it is, is that the all of these nodes... Um, calculate what's in the blockchain and just make sure that it you know it's on the up and up uh, what do you think of that as a potential for the future well it sounds very very complicated it sounds it sounds great it's a very communal kind of uh you know uh, utopian approach i think you know maybe that was what was going on in the 90s with napster this this kind of sharing mentality this you know sharecropping thing um, but I guess if the, if, so how are we going to get the, the, the clutches of the big machine to, to buy into this or to let go of what, you know, their, their profiting kind of mechanism? I mean, well, how, how I mean, if make- you if you look at it from, I mean, the digital revolution from its inception, I mean, why would Spotify want it, want any, want it any other way? Well, you know, they, of course, wouldn't want it any other way because they're, you know, the guy who owns Spotify is probably making more money than any 10 artists on his platform, you know, the major artists. Um, So, you know, for him, this is not a good, good sign. But the fact of the matter is that this technology is out there and it is being utilized right now by sites like Audius and Emanate and Audiolocks, you know, this whole AI Web3 um, blockchain-based technology, and um, and and it's to me it's interesting in that um, this technology goes beyond just the streaming. You know what I mean? Um, and if you look at the history, you know we had Napster. Everyone said, "Oh, you can't stop Nas- Napster." It's you know this this um, decentralized streaming system. And then, you know, along comes iTunes with their 99-cent downloads and iPods, and everyone had to have an iPod, and, of course, you needed iTunes to get stuff on the iPod. And then, you know, then all of a sudden streaming comes in, and there goes Apple, you know, and then Apple created a streaming service. So the the overriding... um, 
history of the digital revolution is this constant changing of corporations or companies that are providing um, a way to consume music. And that will eventually evolve. The question is, how is it going to evolve? And if we as independent artists are willing to, to do what we need to do to get a seat at that table. Right now, with this new blockchain-based streaming services, getting a seat at that table is really just paramount to getting your material up on these platforms, telling your fans, hey, check out these, these platforms and listen to me here. And then you're already there. You're an owner now of that platform. So you now automatically have a seat at that table. Right. Um, and so that's, that's one way of doing it. And now there is this other site called Royal.io that allows you to create these non-fungible tokens or these NFTs that represent a small portion of your streaming royalties or your publishing royalties, whatever the case may be that you can now sell to your fan base, almost like selling stock in a song. And this one rap artist did it, Nas. And he created, um, on his new release, he took two songs and he created enough NFTs to represent, I think it was 0.015% of his streaming royalties on each one of them. He sold them to his fan base and was able to generate almost $600,000 of upfront income. All right. And then he now has over 3,000 fans that have an economic interest in making sure that his music is streamed. All right. On top of that, these things get bought and sold on the open market. So as they get resold and, and traded on this open market, he gets a commission in perpetuity every time these things get resold. So, what I mean, that's another business model that sounds really interesting, for, especially for independent artists. I mean, think about it. If you could have invested in the Beatles catalog, into Beatles songs, as a penny stock back in the day, yeah, you would be sitting pretty right now, yeah, you know? Indeed. So this could be a new economic model for the music industry going forward. What do you think of that particular model? Well, uh, it's something that I would be interested in. I think to to you know, it, it a lot of it comes down to the to the consumer. It has to be worthwhile for the consumer, and in terms of money and time, and and that's why. No, like you said earlier in the conversation, you know, you, you can't blame the consumer with Spotify. You get for ten bucks a month, you get access to everything. <laughs> it's just, uh, I personally don't have a Spotify account, but I had to set up one for this record, and um, I need a profile and all that. So I have to play the game along, uh, you know, to, to to be part of this, uh, to be relevant. But uh, if there's another direction to go, I think if if some of the you know, it could be done at a, at, a, at a grassroots level. Maybe some of the small artists um, start going in this direction, um, and you build enough of a, a base where it becomes tangible, and, and people want to start investing in it. And then, 
you know, usually one big artist comes along and does it, and now all of a sudden there's a trend, and they're like the Pied Piper, and everybody follows. Right. So it sounds good to me. I'd be, you know, I'm, uh, I mean, if you, <laughs> you know, when you have a record out, if you look at the amount of streams compared to the sales, you know, uh, it's, it's 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 shocking. So. <laughs> If, yes. somehow, if somehow that could be reversed, uh, that'd be that'd be fine in my book. It's only fair, um, you know. I think we look back at the 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 old record industry, and you know, it used to be unfair to the artists back then, and now it's just it's even it's even worse. You know, um, at least you 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 got something. Uh, I don't I don't remember what the the going rate was for a, a single or a record back in the 70s 60s and 70s but um it was better than than a stream that's for sure yeah stream is you know one one hundredth of a of a penny i don't know i'm just guessing well you know so. back then you had mechanical royalties you had your publishing royalties you had your songwriting royalties you had you know all of that monies that that would be siphoned through um, you know the record companies. You know when you had a record deal, which back in those days was really just a, a high interest loan with bad terms. You know, right? Uh, but you know that's why we need to kind of get rid of these middlemen. You know, in the industry. Yeah. Well, I'm all for that. Um, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, you I know, like it. I, I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking with us. And uh, we're going to give everyone out there an Indie Blues double shot from your new release. You guys are going to love this. You know what? Turn it up loud. Screw the neighbors. We're going to have some fun tonight.
day I brushed the cheek of a model man It was warm without pain Today I watch the soul of a mortal man Rise above its own acclaim It's the purpose of true living To die without self-shame There's no concession for the good life It's a price that can't be paid Was rumor of the folklore That he had time with fame Hear it. That's all the cries that do it feel. 
gonna rock this shit. Gonna scream my name. Make you shout now, honey. Gonna make you shout. Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution.
scale. Yes, I 
Everybody till the morning 
moment you realize, how could there possibly be this many blues? You've got a light that shines so bright deep within your soul. Even though you're struggling, some things you can't control. Why you always gotta be your own damn worst enemy? Living like the songs that you were writing. Don't you know the man I see ain't as hard as you pretend to be? More afraid of living than of dying. Higher ground. I know who you really are. 
Make the old wounds heal I can't get enough of you What you in the man What you tame the crowd Oh, I'm so strung out Never letting me down Deep down in your soul Justice is a gift on my daughter's wedding day.
watching you Walk away from me One of life's smaller pleasures It's really something to see
you can't talk about the blues without talking about its diversity. And I think you're going to love this. Surprise. 
what's a man to do To break his own heart You pick up the pieces of a puzzle That was broken from the start I'm not the kind of man Who would leave a good girl alone When it all falls apart Well you said you'd never leave me So you stayed and broke my heart I'm not the kind of man Who can hurt down to the bone But that woman
that's it. That's my show for tonight. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I hope you heard some artists that you didn't know about and enjoyed some artists that you did. And remember, all of these artists that I played on this show are out there right now, touring and creating new original music rooted in the blues. If you want to keep the blues alive, you have to support the artists who are out there creating that new music. Because it is a living art form that is being performed every single night somewhere in the world. So, if you get a chance, stop by our website at makingascene.org. You can find out about some great new artists and the ones that we played on this show tonight. Add them to your playlist. And you can discover them on our website. So, till next time, this is Lahamadu. Tech, I'm out of here. Baby, just gone away. Activates left on with my friend. I gone, lost my dog, I'm alone. Just fought somebody. I mean, found it funny. I got knocked in the head, man, by old friends. Now lying here, think I'm dead. I'm the one who leaves work